that um, uh, along with a major uh, um, pinnacle of that movement was Billy Graham and Bill Bright's meetings in Dallas that uh, spun off hundreds of thousands of evangelists where all around the country a person could be asked, do you know Jesus or are you saved? And because of the media's attention on what was going on around the country, people would be able to say yes or no and not be thinking, what are you talking about? Think about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibiting discrimination based on ethnicity and gender. Or even further back, William Wilberforce's legislation ending the slave trade in most of the British Empire back in 1807. Think about our own Declaration of Independence and the shockwave, the first shot, they say, of that revolution, which is called, known as the shot heard around the world and the difference that that made over the entire globe. Many other declarations, peace treaties, and agreements like the Magna Carta of 1215. Each of these represent a change of the status quo. They represent a change of not just, maybe just feeling, but also a change of relationship, a change of of, uh, new standards of expectations. Each are examples of liberation, maybe from terrible injustice that was being carried out, or of new relationship, reconciliation, or, or redemption of some kind. Jesus' death and resurrection is the most pivotal, the most pivotal moment in all of history even compared to any one of these, or all of them combined. It's the most pivotal moment of all of history. And it can seem like the greatest injustice of all time as well. It can seem like the greatest injustice even being the most pivotal moment in all of history. I don't have control. The main idea I want to get across to you this morning is this. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the pivotal moment of all of history. And in that moment, the just judge of all mankind satisfied his justice by pouring out our judgment on his perfect son. The just judge satisfied his justice by pouring out our judgment on his perfect son. You might remember two weeks ago, we started to look at Romans 3, starting verse 21. And we asked the question, actually, we looked at all of this section, this section that we are dubbing amazing justice. We started to ask this question, how does a just judge declare sinners to be righteous? And the answer coming from chapter 3 that we looked at is the fact that it's only by the work of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we learn from these verses of chapter 3, verses 21 forward, that it's only by the work of God through the person of Jesus Christ that a just judge can declare sinners righteous. 
And we, the term that, that is, is used, that's defined as declaring righteous, is the term justified. And you see that term uh, popping up here in chapters 321 through the rest of chapter 5. We see that term popping up here more than anywhere else. This idea of being justified before God. So let's start here in verse 21 of chapter 3. We're going to be looking at, reading just this morning, 21 through 27. We're told in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 17, we were told that the gospel is the power of God, that in the gospel, the power of God is revealed. And, and that in being in the present tense of it is revealed, it's describing the fact that every time the gospel is preached, the power of God is revealed. Now here we see in verse 21 that we're told in the gospel the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now being in past tense here, it's talking about the fact here that in the cross, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, at that moment, the righteousness of God was made known, was shown, was manifested for the world to see. And what did that mean? Nope. Yeah, it's turned on. Um, Want to give me a new battery? Two triple Thanks. This will sound really interesting on the internet. What are they talking about? Let's review kind of the specifics of the gospel that we see here, all right? In verse 22, which isn't up there on the screen. Oh, thank you. We see that it talks about the specific way of the gospel, all right? It talks about the fact that it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is a specific way in which we are able to be saved. It is only going to come through the righteousness of God being given to us through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Now, if you'll skip ahead to verse 23 here. 23. There we go. Thank you. That was it. An explanation of that specific way of the righteousness of God being given to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We looked at the fact that it is because all have sinned. For all have sinned, he says, and fall short of the glory of God. And in this specific way, they are able to, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
This specific way is in recognizing the fact that we have fallen short, speaking probably specifically of the fact that all mankind fell short of a relationship with God, with the glory of God that we had with him when we were created. We have all fallen short of that glory, but we are able to be justified as a gift. In other words, if, it, if we don't come to him by grace as a gift, that's not his way. Are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No other person whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. And we looked at the fact that it is a specific person, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We see also in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We looked at the fact that there was a specific purpose for God providing salvation in this way. And that is that he might be shown that he is just, but at the same time justifying, declaring righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. Continues on in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the specific result that we looked at that comes from a person finding salvation through God's specific process and his specific person for the specific purpose of him being just and also the justifier, the specific result is the fact that there is no room for any Christian to boast that they found God, that they found salvation. There is no room for boasting. So last week we looked at this specific process of finding salvation. Today we're looking at the specific purposes of the cross of Christ. John Stott writes, If God justifies sinners freely by his grace, on what grounds does he do so? How is it possible for the righteous God to declare the unrighteous to be righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness? That is our question. God's answer is the cross. God's answer is the cross. So in these verses, we see what happened once for all for humanity's sake to allow for the salvation of all who believe. And what happened in the cross, once for all, and this is like subsets of the word salvation. We'll see this morning the redemption of sinners, the propitiation of God's wrath, and the demonstration of His justice. 
all of those things are wrapped up in providing salvation for us. So we're looking this morning at, at what came only through the cross of Christ. What came only through the cross of Christ. Uh, this past week, I was um, <clears throat> using this uh, single-serve smoothie maker that we have. You know, it's a cup, and you put this lid on it that's got blades in it, and you put that on, upside down on the smoothie maker, and you turn it, and it, everybody in the house knows you're making a smoothie, right? It, I thought that was bad, and then the, once I installed a uh, tile backsplash right behind where the smoothie maker runs, it's like I literally cover my ears while I'm running this thing. But somehow, as the thing was kind of like, I swear it's not because I didn't put the lid on tight enough. <laughs> Something happened that when I took the smoothie, the cup off of there with the blades on it and lifted it and got it about uh, just right halfway over the uh, counter and the floor, the bottom, the blades just fall out. And this whole mixture of blueberries and strawberries and other stuff comes splashing out onto the counter, onto the floor, onto the white cabinets, onto the stove, partly onto my computer. And, and, and I'm like, ugh, worst mess ever. Now, what made this particularly bad was that it was inside, right? I mean, if I dumped a smoothie out onto the yard, not a big deal. What would have made it even worse is like if I was over some expensive rug or hanging it over a white couch or something like that when it happened, right? Because the, you have the mess, you have what happens, but then you have what the mess made a mess of, right? That kind of makes it a bigger mess or a lesser mess. So I, I, I count that as good thing it wasn't over a couch, Yeah. The size of the mess we're in depends on what is damaged by it. And our separation from God is the biggest mess ever made because of what was damaged by it. It's the biggest mess for us. And honestly, we messed up His creation. Our only hope for the biggest mess of all time was the cross of Christ. Plain and simple. We see, as we have laid out here in these verses, that first of all, only through the cross of Christ, God bought us out of the slavery that we deserve. This is redemption. God bought us out of the slavery that we deserved. This is what's pictured when he says, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, there's different ideas of redemption, right? You can redeem a situation, right? Let's make the best of it, right? I'm asking you in some ways to redeem my forgetfulness by uh, coming and getting some invitations from the front door of Harvest to give to 
to, to friends and family and stuff like that. That's kind of looking to, to make a situation better. That's not what's being described here. What's being described here is the idea of what would take place in a marketplace where slaves are being sold. And for someone to come and to pay the costly price to have a slave put into their ownership and then set them free. Uh, as I've mentioned in the past, this is, this, this is what God depicted in his his guidance in his relationship with the prophet Hosea, who, who had Hosea marry a prostitute, knowing that she was just going to leave him over and over and over again. And finally, the story gets to the place where Hosea goes to the city center, where here is this woman that he was called to love, that he was called to have as the mother of his children, and she's naked on the slave block. And nobody wants her. But God calls Hosea to go and to buy her back. And not buy her as a slave, but to buy her as his wife. And, and God had Hosea live out this drama because it was a picture to his people that this is what I do with you. And you can read about that in the book of Hosea. In the Old Testament, Israel was described as redeemed, bought back out of slavery from Egypt. This is a theme throughout the Bible that God is communicating and that He's culminating in the cross of Christ. You know, um, uh, in the town that Kelly grew up in, uh, up in Wisconsin, they had a dog catcher. You know, I never knew. I grew up in Tennessee. You know, dogs were just like a part of the wildlife and stuff like that. But they had a dog catcher, you know, in town. And if your dog was running loose, the dog catcher would go get them and they'd be put in the pound. And you'd have to come and pay a price to get the dog out of the pound. And they had a particular dog that was just like a dog that kept wanting to run away and run away. And, and it finally came down to her dad having to decide, okay... I don't feel like I, you know, my son needs new shoes and I'm stressed about that and here I'm going to have to buy this dog out again. And the dog came to the end of its grace. You know, it came to the end of being redeemed back over and over again. But Christ's redemption of us was final and foremost. It was a redemption of the eternal God meaning it was a redemption that can count for all of time, a redemption of made by the Almighty God, meaning there's no running out of power or ability of this redemption that can count for all people of all of time. I think one of the greatest pictures, and, and this picture, we call this in literature or in, in movies, in fiction, we call this the Christ figure. And it pops up all the time in, in movies and things where one character is willingly sacrificing themselves so that even maybe just one person would be able to be set free. One of the stories that sticks out to me more than in all the others than when I, when I think about this concept is, is in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
In this story, the four children find their way into Narnia through the wardrobe, and one of them becomes a traitor, Edmund. Edmund becomes uh, a, a pawn of the wicked, not, not the, the white witch, and, and, and the white witch, or, or having freed Edmund from her, her uh, bondage, the white witch comes to Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, and demands his blood. And she says to him, uh, asks Aslan, have you forgotten the deep magic? He says, let us say I have forgotten it. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice growing suddenly shriller. Tell you what is written on the very table of stone which stands before us. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia. At the very beginning, you know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to kill. And so the human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property, she says. And Aslan responds, it is very true. I do not deny it. Susan and, and Lucy complain about this. They're like, something has to be able to be done. Oh, Aslan, can't we? I mean, won't you? You will. Can't you do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something that can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face, and nobody ever made that suggestion to him again. This deep magic, as it's described, is written on this stone table on which Aslan, representing Christ, would give himself and die shaved of his mane and abused in place of the traitor Edmund. And this would have been the end of the story if there had not been what is called in the book a deeper magic. Just as, bi- as our big mess of our sin would have been the end of us and the end of this world and the end of relationship with God, if there wasn't a greater act of redemption made, greater than all of the sin that cursed the whole world. In the book, Susan and Lucy, they witnessed the horrific death of Aslan And they're described as walking aimlessly, unsure of how to proceed. And at that moment, they hear from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken in two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. His dead body was gone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around there, shining in the sunshine, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it apparently had grown again. 
stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a bit little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that there was a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Lewis's story of Aslan and Narnia is a story of redemption through a ransom paid. And as I said, this is one being ransoming another. But Jesus, as the eternal, almighty God, his payment was able to be spent for the ransom redemption of all mankind, of all of time. Another writer says, Jesus Christ redeemed us, bought us out of captivity, shedding his blood as a ransom price. He himself has spoken of his coming to give his life as a ransom for many. In consequence of this purchase or ransom rescue, we now belong to him. And we don't belong to him as a slave. We belong to him as a child. We belong to him as his child, fully accepted, fully redeemed, fully forgiven. And it comes to a person simply by saying, yeah, I'm a sinner, and I can't have this relationship with you on my own. But I believe that what you did in your death and your resurrection can count for me so that I can be your child. So God, please forgive me. And let me walk with you. You know, that family dog that gets bought back probably gets scolded. I've scolded ours for a lot less than that. Uh, The kid, you know, you can imagine, uh, you know, the dog jumping out of the car and the kid being, oh, good, you're back. And the dad being like, you know, I did this for the kids, he's thinking. Be a different relationship between that dad and that dog from then on, I think. But Here's the, seal. Here's the deal. Our redemption comes with the relational solution to the righteousness of God. It doesn't just come with a solution to our problem of, of being a slave to the wrong kingdom, to a destructive kingdom of darkness. It also comes with a relational solution between us and God. And it's found in the term propitiation. You see, only through the cross of Christ, God turned himself from our rightful enemy to our friend. And this is propitiation. He turned... I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just... uh, All right. He turned himself from our rightful enemy to our friend. Many Christians are embarrassed at the idea 
that God would be wrathful. And, and I think there's a reason for that. It's because as Christians, we don't know that wrath. But God is wrathful towards evil. He is wrathful towards sin. His wrath built up, we're told. Uh, forbearingly passing over sins prior to Christ's sacrifice. And it builds up still. And will be poured out at the end of time on any who have not come to him through Jesus Christ. The human predicament is not only sin, it's God's wrath for sin. The need that we have is the fact that God's wrath stands before evil. And through sin, we became evil itself. The provider of God was that out of love for us, he presented his own son as a sacrifice of atonement. This is what's said in John 3.16, which we know and love, that for all... (laughs) I knew I was going to do this. Give me the first verse. Thank you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Propitiation is a term. Prior to it being used by Paul in the Bible, is a term that would describe pagan religion. It was a term that would describe a situation where, because in man-based pagan religion, Man can sense there's something wrong between him and the creator. Man can sense there's something wrong between me and whoever it is that must control all the things that I cannot control. And so in every religion outside of biblical Christianity, that a deity is constructed that is in control of those things but is offended by creation is offended by the people that are trying to worship them. So propitiation in pagan worship is the idea of of man trying to get the attention of the deity by trying to make them happy with them again or trying to turn their face toward them so that they can get from them what it is that they believe that they need. And that's the term that, that God chooses to use to describe our relationship with him. But the difference is that God provided his own system for how we could escape from his wrath. And it was that great sacrifice to himself. Another writer says it would be hard to exaggerate the differences between the pagan and the Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own paltry offerings. According to the Christ uh, revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. That's propitiation. 
God himself gave himself to save us from himself. That we rightfully deserved in wrath toward our sin. This is why 1 John 4.10 says, This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is love, it says. This is love. So meditating recently on the, the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And it catches an aspect of propitiation that is also true. It says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that she that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You see, propitiation isn't saying, okay, we've taken care of this sin, you know, now you're in the doghouse. Because we have this concept in our mind of the way that the prodigal son was thinking when he's headed on his way home in this parable. And he's, and he's reciting this statement that he's going to make to his father as he asks them to let him back into his, into his home. And he's saying, I know that I've sinned against you. I know that I've, I've wasted your money. I know that I've insulted you. Would you please let me at least be a slave in your home? But that's not propitiation. Propitiation is going, God turning from our enemy to our friend, to our father. Because what does the father do? And this is, this is God describing himself to us. The father sees him at a distance and runs to his repentant son. And, and before his son can even get the words out of his mouth, starts to recite this statement, I don't deserve my relationship with you. Just at least let me be a slave in your home. His father scoops him up in a big bear hug, starts shaking him and, and you know, spinning around, I picture, and says, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring sandals for his feet. My son was lost and has returned. That is propitiation, except in the real picture of propitiation, we go to that, but we started as God's enemy, rightfully deserving his wrath. Let me ask you, as we grow, as we mature, <clears throat> we should sin less, and we're typically more grieved by our sin. But how do you think God looks at your sin? Do you think he's angry? And I'm talking to you, if you've, re if you've received Christ as your Savior and you walk as his child, do you think he's angry with you about your sin? His wrath was poured out on Christ. Now, he will discipline you as a loving father. He will, he will, he will coax you along and, and make you uncomfortable so that you will trade that sin for greater joy in him. But he's not angry with you. He's not wrathful toward you. Now, that doesn't mean that our sin is not costly. Every sin we think and do and desire 
was laid upon Christ, increasing the anguish and the pain that he experienced in separation from his father because of it. But God is not angry. His wrath has been propitiated by laying your sin on Christ and he's turned his face to you as your father and your friend. The last thing we see here is that only through the cross of Christ, God acted justly, even allowing sinners to be declared righteous. We saw he's been described here redemption and propitiation. This is God's demonstration where we read, this was shown, this was to show God's righteousness. What was the cross? The cross itself was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his patience with sin, he had passed over former sins. Continues in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that he might be just and wrath, that wrath for sin was poured out. That judgment was poured out. The just judge had carried out judgment, but he was also justifier, <coughs> declaring righteous those that deserved judgment for sin. By pouring it out on Christ, the public doling of punishment demonstrated God's justice. And the cross facilitated the divine attribute of justice and the divine activity of judgment. And our salvation demonstrates the divine activity of justification, declaring sinners to be righteous. Read another quote for you. It says, Through the sin bearing, substitutionary death of his son, God has propitiated his own wrath in such a way as to redeem and justify us and at the same time demonstrate his justice. And what happened in the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? What happened when Aslan was resurrected from the dead? The stone table was broken. As a statement for the rest of time, this payment has been made. In the same way, God chose to demonstrate his righteousness, both in pouring it out on Christ, but also in saving you. You are a demonstration of his righteousness. Because we're righteous all the time? No. But before him, we are righteous because of Christ and his cross. God demonstrated for the world to see that you are forgiven and free. And God demonstrated for you to see that you are forgiven and free. I just want to close reading the rest of this hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. All measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure, 
How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Not I'm finished. It. Redemption. Salvation. It's completed. It's finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. What should why should I gain? Why, why should I be blessed in this way? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Do you know that with all your heart? Because I will tell you, God has an enemy. One of his number one goals with you, if you've received Christ as your Savior, is to get you to live as if that's not true. To get you to live as if his wounds have not paid your ransom. But he wants you to know that's how powerful a cross was. Every single thing that every single person has ever done in offense of the righteousness of God was paid for in him including you. Let's bow our heads.